2: Hello, here we are at episode number 24. How are ya? All's tickety-boo here at the Ministry of Arts, firing on all cylinders, as it were. Firstly as ever, the Patreon supporters. Thank you very much, guys. We couldn't produce this podcast without you. And as you're well aware, this podcast is free to anybody. But if you're able to support us with a small £3 a month donation, that would be very much appreciated. You can follow the link in the Ministry of Arts Instagram profile page there's a little drop box there which will direct you over to Patreon. It's all pretty straightforward, but if you're not able to, a little shout out on the socials always goes down well. It's all about spreading the love, right? And speaking of spreading the love, after Jeffrey Harrison and I pretty much created the uh, 97%ers in episode 115, we've decided to put on a little exhibition just for the 97%ers. And if you're unaware of what I'm talking about, you can either go to episode 115 or look through the Ministry of Art socials and just look for the large number 97 on one of their Instagram posts. But yes, we've decided to do a small virtual exhibition in celebration of where we stand in this beautiful art world of ours. And if you're a 97% a badge holder, and like the old Blue Peter badge holders, you get a little discount of £3, which was the cost of the badge itself. So it's going to be £15 to enter, 12 for a badge holder, Any proceeds go straight back in to support the podcast, and as far as sales are concerned, 100% goes to the artist. (laughs) Although we wouldn't turn down any donations if they were offered. There's only two restrictions, and they are, the work can only be wall hung, and it can't be more than 1.2 metres wide. So if you'd like to be a part of it, just drop a little private message to the Ministry of Arts on any of their socials, which is at ministryofarts.org. Or you can email at ministryofartsorg at gmail.com and they'll get back to you with all the relevant info. So that's £15 for non-badge holders, £12 for badge holders, 2D work only with a maximum width of 1.2 metres and it's only open to those whose art practice isn't their sole income. They are the three percenters. But anyway, back to this week's podcast. This week, I was lucky enough to have a Zoom call with filmmaker Sarah Hardy. Sarah has recently been awarded the inaugural Soho House Art Prize 2020-2021. Her work was chosen by a panel which consisted of Maria Balshaw, director of the tape, Kate Bryan, head of Global Collections at Soho House, and artist Hebrew Brentley. Sarah's film, which was created over lockdown, It's called Spring Sometimes Rises in Me Too. It's a symphonic visual essay that really is a thing of beauty. It was screened at the electric cinemas internationally throughout June. And if I can just read you a little something about Sarah's practice. Sarah's practice deals with how we live in the world, the intimate and the extimate nature of human voice and how we connect through it via language and other forms of oral communication. The concept of resonance itself captures within it the potential for both love and loss and these ideas are always in the heart of her work. And once you've listened to this podcast, I do urge you to follow the link in the show notes over on our social media page or the website of Soho House itself and just immerse yourself in Sarah's film, Spring Sometimes Rises in Me Too. So please, come and join me to find out more about Sarah Hardy
3: great way to reach people internationally you know like they can't come to the space for example so it just it does open up a lot of reach and possibility.
2: I have seven questions that I ask each artist. Yeah. So one being how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know your work?
3: yeah so you've I think actually this is always quite a tough one isn't it? Um, but you know I think other artists uh, well they do very well but how do I explain? I would just say I would say that I explore explore the kind of um, the impact and uh, possibilities the potential of the human voice um, and it's very kind of relationship focused. Um, uh, I think in my previous work, um, before "Sleep at the End of Love," description of a lullaby, the opera that I opera that I wrote um, and performed at the v like that was kind of looking at um, thinking about the voice as something that like enters the other. Um, and through research, this in this work, I've actually kind of come to draw the conclusion that the voice is like quoting the work, like where the subject and object meets, like sort of somewhere in between us. Um, so yeah, that's really important uh, in my practice. And it also like, you know, I think, I mean, I am a feminist. Um, I look, at, I, I, it's quite personal work. I take like, I work from, from my experience as a woman. Um, and uh, yeah, I make research-based performance uh, work generally um, that deals with voice.
2: We mentioned there, um, before sleep at the end of love, a beautiful setting for a, what what felt like a small opera in a in a multi-story car park at night.
3: Yeah, so I mean, I got, um, so I got approached by um, George Roberts Bascombe, like the Polyglot Society who was doing like a curator, like a music sort of curatorial, yeah. music artists kind of mix. Um, curatorial stint uh, for um, Bold Tenancies for Hannah Barry um, because he'd, I'd told him I'd met him at an event randomly and given him like shameless promoter that I am. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'd, given him,
0: um,
3: <laughs> I'd given him like the publication for my work for Edinburgh Art Festival called Songs for Someone Who Isn't There yeah. Um, and he'd read that, like, and it was really you know, it was so nice because you give people these things and I think you know like half the time it's just like, oh publication, it you know, it sits on their desk for a while and then it gets recycled, you know? Yeah, like yeah so it's so nice when someone takes the time, like, which you've you know, you've put all your heart and soul and time into this thing. Um, so it's so nice when someone like values that. So yeah, he I think he originally thought I was gonna be doing um like just restaging songs for someone who isn't there.
1: Yeah.
3: Um, in, in Hannah Barry's uh, Bold Tendencies, um, the multi-story car park in Peckham, that's an art space um, now. And, um, but then instead I was like, well, God, this is just such an amazing opportunity. And I wanted to, so I really wanted to respond to the site. Um, and so actually like I went in quite a lot and like just, sort of was in the space, like feeling, feeling the space out and like sang in the space. And then um, I decided that I, I started writing stuff based on like the research I'd done for my, um, for my dissertation uh, at the Courtauld, um, which was all kind of towards my practice. Like it was looking at song and love in um, David Austin's End of Love uh, film and um, through a psychoanalytic lens, um, particularly through the work of Donald Winnicott. And uh, so basically like, yeah, I just was in the space and then I was starting to just kind of use it and think about it and ended up writing kind of like automatic singing in the space, if you like, like just kind of singing randomly and like responding to the sounds of like the train nearby and stuff. And like, I didn't even realize I was like, but then bringing it back to I like brought on board a co-composer, um, Jack Sheen. And he kind of like, cause he can actually do that. Like I'm kind of more of a, like, listen, I'm a listening yeah, and yeah, a yeah. singing composer. And I mean, I can write music, but I'm, you know I'm pretty atrocious when it comes <laughs> to
0: music.
3: Um, so, and he, you know, he was amazing at that. So he kind of like, then we like picked together what was what was good from that. And he was like, oh, that's actually like the same one of my friends was like that's the same tone as the train doors open at. Wow,
2: so, wow. Yeah, what an ear!
3: Yeah well but it's weird isn't it but it's like I think just just um I w- what I'm good at which is actually a bit annoying if you are a musician um is you just I just tune in to stuff around me yeah. but if you so I'm a soprano one therefore um the oh who always sings the tune and if anyone ever gives me the harmony to sing, I just can't do it. <laughs> it's always like, I just go back up to the to the tune. Anyway, yeah, so I made this work and um, performed it at, in the car park with Muse Arc. Um, yeah. and, um, and then like it was, you know, it was at sunset because it was supposed to be like before Sleep at the End of Love description yeah. of a lullaby. So it was like about, um, about the notion of transitional phenomena, which is like, transitional object is what we would know as like the baby's blanket um or you know a little comforter basically yeah and reading Donald Winnicott I was just so I was just like blown away to read that he which no one really writes about um transitional phenomena and he wrote about it as like that the baby before sleep uh like soothes themselves um by singing by singing to themselves or like making garbled noises, and I actually heard my nieces doing that. Um, oh, I, nice! Yeah, and I was like, "God, that's so interesting!" And like they do, and it's to like ease their anxiety away from their mother, and to ultimately, he wrote like recognize themselves as autonomous beings. And I found that like really moving, kind of kind of sad, but kind of obviously great. Like he was, he, he wrote that like the work of the good enough mother is. Like the ultimate goal is to um, disillusion the child um, and let them realise that they are this individual as opposed to like yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah.
3: And so I think there's a kind of it's beautiful and obviously it's necessary, but it's really quite sad as well that like the ultimate goal is to be alone or to be able to cope alone. I guess which is just like human nature, but like. So, yeah, I was really inspired by that idea and the work kind of stemmed from that. Um,
2: Yeah, the relationship between the voice and your mother is something that uh, Spring Sometimes Rises in Me Too was about, isn't it?
3: So, yeah, basically, like my mum trained at the RSAMD, now the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, in like continued studies opera singing and you know I think she did have a bit of a dream to be an opera singer but then you know life happened um she got married had three kids and I don't know if she had the confidence necessarily yeah. to do that and she and she basically you know didn't choose that path basically whether that was you know a bit impacted by society's you know like a yeah. as well um anyway you know she's happy and stuff I just wanted to like reiterate that because she was like I don't want people thinking that like, yeah. like she resents
2: or- you <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly
3: exactly I'm like no 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 like don't worry like I'll make it clear
1: yeah.
3: <laughs> but yeah so she um I mean we grew up there for like all of us three three of us girls um singing you know singing was just like part of our childhood and you know my gran would sing around the house when you know she was cleaning like Brilliant. it was just, you know we were we we're singing practically before we could speak like <laughs>
0: um
3: apparently I was sitting in my high chair like um just going ah oh. and my mom was like if she can she's got great breath control so she <laughs> hold a note then uh yeah so um yeah basically it's just part of our household which the
2: film yeah. kind of even as a baby, when you're crying, you go up and down the scale.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Arpeggio cries. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was that for my grandmother, mother, unfortunately. Yeah, like um, the film kind of comes from the, the idea of that. I found a practice tape of hers from 1979, Brilliant. 80. Um, and she was 23 at the time and she was like singing along to artists that she admired um singers that she admired and um I it was amazing to hear this tape for the first time um it's the only tape we have of her singing no. um and she she found she like sought it out for me um and we didn't even know what was on the tape and then I got it digitized by my very kind friend Aria at Central Saint Martins, Aria Fatty thank you and um uh, <laughs> shout out you got it like you know when you get so many favors from people and in this line of work you've just always constantly thanking people um and that's it's so lovely isn't it That like you know it's so collaborative to make to make work for me anyway um so anyway he digitized it and then I listened to it for the first time what really struck me apart from like my mum singing all all the way back then um that kind of distance of time, like between us, like almost kind of like viscerally shown um, yeah. by the, it was, was the marks on the tape effectively, like the, so where she um, where she breathed in before she expelled sound um, or where she like was like, <clears throat> you know, like those nice. little yeah. moments um, you could really hear, like I recognized her in them. Yeah. Um, and I loved that kind of the notion of like the attempt and the endeavour, like the preparation, the hmm, you know, like yeah. um, and uh, and also like what the tape had, what time had done to the tape in terms of like the warping of it. Um, and obviously, you know, it would it become this really interesting object. The what the what's it called like the reel of the tape effect. Yeah. And was really precious as well like you know it could have been destroyed potentially in the digitization process I think or like by playing it and then it would be gone you know like um so anyway yes a lot of the kind of looking at breath and the idea of the endeavor or the attempt in the work is is from that but then also you know very much also breath I mean you can't get away from it like in the last year breath's obviously been kind of something that's been dangerous um and something that's been denied to people obviously with you know the murder of George Floyd like breath has been on you know many of our minds um and the uh, kind of inequality um that was writ large in 2020. I wanted to kind of deal with that in in the way that I did so um, I was also looking at the garden in the work And there's a line um, in it that i it's a quote by ian hamilton finley which um in which he said like certain gardens are seen as retreats when they are actually attacks and i thought that was so interesting because like the you know i mean i quote derek jarman in the in the at the start of the work and it's like you know this glorious, like the garden is the amen beyond the prayer. I mean, when I read that, I was like, wow, that is just the most amazing thing I've yeah. ever read. And it, it, you know, the garden was a retreat for many of us, but also like not everyone had a garden and then like they couldn't have this retreat. And then the idea of kind of like ownership and like, um, you know, who gets the garden and who doesn't and whose voice is heard and who isn't and the kind of boundaries we draw between each other, That really, that really came into the work too. Um, kind of represented by the garden so yeah there's like it kind of started out with my mum and the notion of nature and the garden and then it really like took on just the whole of my like lockdown experience Um, and yeah yeah, trying to kind of make a work that tried to make sense of our time a little bit like but I mean yeah it's obviously one from one person's.
2: I mean the film starts outside footsteps walking through the field and then all of a sudden the stage that's set is inside a beautiful building it was london wasn't it It was looking yeah, at set house
3: actually it, it was beautiful yeah.
2: set the stage with um fake grass
3: real grass brilliant two tons of real perfect grass. yeah and so
2: it should be <laughs>
3: Yeah, it was quite the endeavour. I think sometimes I have a
2: little
3: bit too ambitious on a project.
2: I love it that I was so wrong. Yeah, I like that.
3: Um,
2: At the start, you mentioned about you and your siblings having a rivalry in the voice as a child. Throughout the film, all I saw was the three figures being you and your siblings as... Flowers like that blowing in fun. the wind. I couldn't bring myself away from that.
3: That is so interesting, Gary, actually, because while some of that was kind of conscious to me, actually, so it was interesting i was I was thinking about like the third term, the third person um in making it because you know, I mean, I originally um brought three actors in thinking it was it was supposed to be a performance at Soul House before, you know, COVID got even worse and it turned into like it had to be a film and I was going to be singing in the performance too and so it wouldn't have been a three and, you know, I'm in the film a little but not much and it's so interesting that, I mean, yeah, subconsciously, like, yeah, she probably is my big sister in it, Georgia, because, like, Nandi is sort of me in the work. I mean, I do kind of avoid, like, specific characterization because I like to kind of play with the notion of like multiple identities in 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 my work I guess um and Angela is probably my twin you know in the work my because she is my twin sister it kind of made sense
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: um yeah so Nandi plays me and then I was always a bit like Georgia was kind of like at times the lover uh in the work but also, that's so interesting that, um, yeah, she probably was the third sister. Um, yeah. yeah, so, nice psychoanalysis there. <laughs>
2: because the, the, the narrative that you set at the start when you was walking in the field and you was explaining the flower.
3: Yeah, a crocus, yeah.
2: Because I knew it was written during lockdown. That's the narrative I had in my mind. he was free walking outside, then all of a sudden the grass is inside. So al- although there was a lot of freedom within that space, it did feel a bit of solitude and, and loneliness, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think, yeah, you're kind of spot on with that. Like, so the crocus in the work is like a metaphor for motherhood. Yeah, like, I mean, I talk about the the notion of the core, like not the notion, but like what a quorum is. Like, yeah. it's like a bulb, but... It protects uh, the plant from unfavorable conditions and um, it has, it grows offshoots known as daughter corms. So like, yeah, definitely like the crocus was a metaphor for motherhood and also spring, you know, hope rising in us all, which I I wanted to make a work that kind of was for post lockdown, you know, like I was, I guess I was naively writing it when I was thinking, oh yeah, in spring, (laughs) all be gone
2: yeah
3: <laughs> I think so the stage set like the notion of a stage set was really important to the work too like and I and the kind of likening of a garden to a stage set um I read quite a lot about like the history of the art of the garden or like art that depicts gardens or even the design of gardens and you know it was the first part of the the first line of the film basically likens the garden, the Renaissance garden, to a stage set—a yeah. site of transformation and dream um, and fantasy. And I kind of wanted to talk about sites of like creative delusion. God, it's it's so interrelated. And like, you ask me one thing, and it goes on to like a billion. <laughs> different things of,
2: of course, on. of course. Yeah, um, it wasn't a direct route for your passage of creating this, was it? You know, it yeah, no stuff in from every direction,
3: yeah, exactly. So, yeah, sites of creative delusion, and like, um, reading Zadie Smith's uh essay Peonies in her intimations that she also wrote in lockdown, I got the title for uh, Spring Sometimes Rises in Me Too, and in that, she talks about like our like her submission kind of resistance initially and then submission to nature as a woman um and I kind of really identified with that especially like I think at a moment where we were all at the complete behest of like nature around us you know we were like stuck in our houses because of this pandemic and the freedom we had was completely curtailed and people were dying and uh and are dying and um and her talking about, sorry, I'm really bad. Uh, like <laughs> Quite that. All right. The artist, when they make, basically has this creative delusion. She quotes a parable by Kierkegaard. And um, I like really related with that notion. She, you know, she says in it that like the artists, like you wouldn't, they wouldn't want to be disrupted from that creative delusion that they have. Like they're building yeah. a high vaulted palace, but they're building this gorgeous palace, this amazing creation, whatever they're building from the dog kennel and it wouldn't do them a favor to disrupt that like the the, full, the thing has to come full circle and they need to achieve that delusion um even if they are you know always in the doghouse. and i kind of like really related to that in like kind of like the the wish the desire to make and also so the desire to produce and also the desire to reproduce like as a woman um a lot of my friends were having babies over lockdown or like you know their first babies I'm thir- I'm now 33 so you know it's like key time um, <laughs> <laughs> apparently I'm, I'm so I'm told um, but it's not currently on the cards for me so yeah there's these kind of like things that you kind of don't think about as a young woman and it's sort of in the back of your mind and then it sort of creeps up on you with this societal kind of weight of biological clock and you know all that and um yeah it's crap to be honest but um (laughs) like but yeah these are things that I think me and I know quite a lot of people my age and I think you know even people you know different ages and you know all over were were thinking about in lockdown and I wanted to kind of get like approach that taboo that is talking about these things
2: yeah. You said that there was a competitive nature with the voice Mm. for your mother. The sibling who isn't the twin. Yeah. There must have even been more competitiveness from her because she she had to compete with the two twins who were sort of two persons in one, if you know what I mean.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it worked quite well in our case in that she, my big sister is six and a half years older than myself and my twin. And I think, therefore, we just adored her, you know. Brilliant. Like, and yeah. you know, our big sister, and she's our ideal eye, if you like. Like, and so she just had us in the palm of her hand. <laughs> she would like sort of turn each of us Excellent. against each other.
2: Yeah. Oh so, Yeah. yeah she just the she evil just, sister. <laughs> <laughs> the evil. The I evil never sister. thought of her like that. <laughs>
3: yeah, Worshiped her, but yeah, like looking back, like she would sort of like up with one of us one day and, and the other the next day. Um, and to be honest, the competition always stemmed from me. Like, I'm really competitive.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so, you know, I feel bad for kind of bringing them into this. Um, right. But um, yeah, it was always me. I don't think Angela really ever felt really competitive towards me. I'm just, yeah. but I think, yeah, there's usually at least one competitive twin and, and that was me.
2: <laughs> and your twin, is she in the arts?
3: Yeah. So she's an actress and Excellent. yeah, she's in the film. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's like done a lot of like theater um, across the UK and actually toured internationally with knee theater company um, and some television as well. So yeah, we're, me and her are both very artistic, big sister less. so.
2: Yeah. Well, it's, it is always quite an interesting um, thing. The, the idea of the twin and their, obvious parallel lives and
3: so we are really really close um and I think um throughout school like you know we were like we were always in the same friendship group but we would have our own kind of like best friend other best friends yeah yeah you know like no one can really compete with your twin like they're always gonna have your back so yeah, and then when we both went to different universities, so I think that was kind of a bit of a rupture and a bit of a like um, formative period in our in terms of our own identities yeah. that were forming. Um, uh, and yeah, that was I mean that's kind of you know I write, I wrote in the film that I felt conjoined almost until I was eighteen, yeah. and then suddenly I was kind of because my friends at uni didn't immediately at least know my sister. I was my own, I, was, I wasn't called the twins. Yeah,
2: you know, you've, you've, all of a sudden you've got your whole identity rather yeah. than just half of one.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one with twins, to be honest. It's like, because, you know, you always do have two identities, but people quite often, like, would, you know, immediately just because you are a twin, they'll call you the wrong name because they just have got it muddled in their head. Yeah, the of course. Right.
2: Well, the artwork that we've been speaking about, Spring Sometimes Rises in Me Too, you put that forward for the open call for the Soho House 2020 Art Prize. Um, (laughs) How did it feel putting something so personal forward for a competition?
3: Well, actually, uh, Gary, I'll tell you what actually happened. I didn't actually put this film
2: forward for- Oh, you didn't, sorry.
3: no, you're fine. No one really knows that though, because like, um, it was for, so the, the prize at the time, and it's, you know, completely COVID related, um, was to make a work an installation potentially performance or you know basically it was open uh, for Art Basel Miami uh, so December time um, at, for like at Soho House in Miami yeah um, and it would have been accompanying Art Basel um, and so I actually proposed the work that was about Miami women uh, like women with an x and like there was this I wanted to like review and like deconstruct and be more representational of uh, the understanding of women in Miami because like after some research online, it was just like really stereotypical, really derogatory understandings of women that were coming up like of Miami women. And actually like I'd done some really interesting research into this amazing woman, uh, Barbara Bear Pittman, who like literally saved the art deco district in Miami. So, you know, an amazing feminist woman going out there doing uh, doing wonderful things that we're all grateful for now. You know, it's the largest art um, Art deco district in the world, apparently. Um, so I wanted to kind of like show Miami women in a different light and I was yeah. planning on doing like an opera and installation and everything around it. But yeah, then I had to completely reconfigure when, um, I, obviously, we couldn't go to America, um, so then it was going to be a work in London. So then I was like, okay, well, I definitely am not doing a work about Miami women in London. <laughs> that, like, absolutely,
2: in, in rainy London.
0: Exactly. Yeah,
3: there's great women on the other side of the world, and check you know, her out. Like you know, yeah. at the place when if you can ever go. Um, so yeah, then I had to kind of return to like okay, so what would I make a work about right now? Like, what can I say? What can I, what people need? And what I decided to make was like a work that would be a kind of hopeful thing beyond lockdown was the idea. Um, and thinking about what my experience was, which was like, us valuing care more greatly than we had ever, you know, done yeah. across the country. Well, not valuing it because the pay rises haven't been... Um, you know, in line with that, but like um, valuing it in a non-monetary sense, which is a shame, valuing it more um, love, like it felt like, you know, there was like loads of like um, compassion uh, in the air at that time. And also these ideas of inequality, though, coming forward and um, us valuing nature more than ever. So it all kind of just like came came in together and then a work kind of came out of that experience so yeah it's weird because I don't know if I would have actually um approached a competition with such a personal work uh but I'm but it's like so my practice and I'm really like really pleased with like it's a whole new kind of direction for me in a way as much as it's still looking at the voice it's like you know thinking about motherhood doesn't well, it is something I thought about, I guess, a bit, but like nature isn't something I thought about, and I hadn't really made a work that spoke as directly about inequality before. But it's, it's always been something that's, you know, I'm because I, I write, I help charities, art charities in my in my like other work, um, to like make money. I uh, I've written a lot about you know, opening up the arts for for more people to make it more accessible to people. Inequality's actually been a big like focus on something that i have been tackling in that in that yeah. type of work that I've done. But yeah, it's good to bring it all kind of together.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So so your film, is it still going to be shown at Art Basil?
3: I don't think so. Um, I mean, I I mean that would be great. Anyway, well, is think? Art
2: Basil still going even?
3: Well, it so it, that, it should have been in December. Yeah. And it's you know, it was cancelled then. I think there was the sort of online viewing room or something. And so I don't. I'm, it's not really connected with art Basel now in any way because, like, I made a new work and it was London. You know, like so. But I mean, anyone listening, feel free to get me involved.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> Although you say you say it was it was London based because of the the feel of the film, it felt like it was in my mind anyway. It didn't feel <laughs> site specific.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, that was uh, that's cool. I'm glad that that kind of came across. I mean, the whole, this whole notion of like, again, it sort of comes back to that like creative delusion, a site for creative delusion and like the garden as a site for transformation and dream and fantasy. And I think I did want to create a kind of uncertainty as to exactly like what was real, what isn't like, um, I really wanted to employ the stage set view. So I had like theater flats cut um, and like um, blue screen done. Yeah. With like a Barbara Hepworth sculpture from all of it was like taken from
2: photographs from Battersea Park, which is and the two pillows. Sorry to interrupt. The two pillars you had either side they felt like the wings, you know.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that was the that was the idea. So I'm glad that came across. Um, And yeah, there was this, you know, that and the notion of a stage, like this kind of set space for creation and um, for fantasy, effectively, like this sort of fictional moment and then like who was on the stage you know like I purposely like Nandi the kind of protagonist if you like was like out in the front not on the stage um, and Georgia was like in the back window like exploring only like the boundaries of her tiny little space which was this window whereas Angela had like the whole field yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and then but then obviously like the work was Proposing that like the voice can bring people together beyond these boundaries. So yeah, I'm glad that came across. I mean, to be fair, I say London. We we filmed the countryside shots were filmed in Inkpen Crocus Field, which is like the largest wild crocus field in England or the UK. That is
2: so specific, isn't it? <laughs> so
3: specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really <laughs> neat. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was good to go there. Although I was kind of expecting it to be a bit more like Well, we had not great weather, so but it was quite a stunning place to be, and it did feel quite wild, which I liked the idea of with that kind of duality at play throughout the film of this kind of like contained stage set space and this kind of like open wilder space. Yeah,
2: well, there was you was treading a lot of long grass, wasn't you, as you was walking? I mean, that the long grass for me, gate gives the um, impression of time, anyway. You know
3: yeah, I love that, yeah. What I really liked about the long grass, oh, you've got so many good insights, Gary. It's so good to talk to you about. <laughs> um you. I really liked, like, I l... so the work is about the marks we leave on each other. I don't even know if I've kind of said that yet, but that's kind of, in summary, kind of what I tend to say, like whether that's like the voice leaving a mark, our yeah. mother's voice leaving a mark on us through the womb or like uh, us leaving marks on nature. I loved watching like in those scenes. I don't know if it's obvious or not, but like what I love about those shots is that like Nandi steps and then she raises her feet and then the grass slowly rises up.
2: And it's it's almost sighing with the yeah, pressure yeah, yeah. being taken that. off so it. Yeah, nice, brilliant. I love
3: that. Yeah, yeah. So I love that that you know it's kind of like marked in a way and yeah, it comes back up but maybe it doesn't go right back up and it's got almost this life of its own like so yeah, that's lovely. Oh, I love that grass sighing.
2: And I liked it where you said earlier that um, you've never really directed your um, your train of thought towards nature, mm-hmm. but it was possibly only because you've been taken away from it during lockdown, as as we all were, that you start you yeah, start yeah. yearning for the things that you haven't got.
3: Yeah, yeah, I I definitely think so. Yeah, I think you know all of us like the beauty in a flower and you know I think we all really recognize that a lot more or like at least I know that you know I I listened I listened to things that spoke about that and like uh spoke with friends and you know like watching watching I guess it was almost like the world goes on around us yeah uh, which was kind of comforting in a way um when we were all sort of stuck like otherwise it felt like the world had stopped and they all thing that was like happening was that like um flowers were blooming last summer and then there was winter and you know the only thing that allowed us to even know when the hell it was like was like the weather and the fact that the trees had leaves on or not yeah yeah so yeah I think we and we looked at it more because we had less to do probably I mean not everyone but like um
2: it was almost yeah. a primal identifier of time, wasn't it?
3: Exactly. Day and
2: night we knew, and but seasons, you had to, yeah, like you say, you had to judge by the colour of the leaves on the tree, man. That's beautiful. Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah.
2: I've well, got a, f- a few of the questions that you've answered without me even asking them oh, okay. so well, I- far. So, so <laughs> I've been ticking them off mentally, as you've been yeah, saying. Yeah. But one of the questions that I ask is, if there was you and five other artists, past and present, what would your ideal group show be?
3: Oh my goodness. Wow. Um, right. I'm just going to say the first people that come into my mind, probably Cornelia Parker. Beautiful. Maybe Rachel Whiteread, um, you know, Christoph Schlingenseef. I wrote about him. He's sadly passed away quite a few years ago now. But um, I wrote about him for my dissertation at uni. Really interesting artist. I wrote about Lamia Jarej as well. Um, I think she's really interesting. Uh, oh, God, there's so many like Mona Hatoum, Sophie Cal. I mean, so many. It's like there's too many references. It's like asking, it's like I find it really difficult to say like what my favorite song is or what, you know, because yeah, like, you get influence like every day, you know, like. Um, I mean,
2: the difference is. Sarah, if I asked you tomorrow, it would be a, a different set of five, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah.
2: Do you know where it's where your film is going to be shown now?
3: So, um, my film is online to view until the 1st of July, like, to view in full. And it's uh, available, like, via Soho House, like, House Notes and then Art and yeah. Design. But it's actually not, and it was screened at Soul House in London and in Miami. And it would be great. I'm not sure if it's, I think we're in talks about like potentially screening it again, like in international, um, in some of the Soul House cinemas. Oh, nice. Which would be really cool. Yeah, I hope that can happen. There's like license fees to like deal with, with the like two pieces in the work that are, yeah. that are not my, my writing. So um yeah that's that could be tricky but um yeah and then I like I made a print um as part of the prize too so that print which is like an emboss a blind emboss of the script that I wrote I hand wrote it um and that is in the soul house collection and it looks like I'm going to be making another print because that sold out within a month which I literally believe literally couldn't believe it like I haven't made a physical piece of work for about 10 years like um so yeah I just only ever like you know a sketch and whatever but it's not like for other people it's for me and then like
2: well as a viewer I did find it a little bit frustrating um when you showed on your Instagram feed when you showed a an image of Jealous Gallery and just said that um for the, I, I can't, I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but for the first time in so long, I've been actually signing a, an artwork today, and um, I was like, well, what is it? <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> yeah. I figured it was something from the the film, and just in my my mind's eye, I visioned that it was a uh, visioned that it was a still, you know.
3: Oh right, yeah, no, um, I thought about that, but then the thing was, I made the print in December. Yeah. And I haven't shot any of them. I it was gonna be a film in December. So um, but um no, I had to keep it kind of like under like under wraps, I thought. I mean, I wasn't sure they didn't say like keep it quiet, but like um they were launching it at a particular time on yeah. so long, so I thought it makes sense to kind of build the anticipation oh, of, of, course, of <laughs> course. I'm not very good at these things, and,
2: and <laughs> rightly so, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was I can't remember what it was that you mentioned in the film. But it did keep throwing me from the, the time that I presumed that it was made. There was there was definitely things that were mentioned in the film that was throwing that backwards and forwards. And at, at some point, yeah. it felt like it was made this week. And at other points, it felt like it was made long before we even yeah. knew of a pandemic, you know?
3: That's interesting. I mean, it was written over the course of nine months because yeah. I was working on it, like, continually and then, like, kind of adapting it or originally for like for London and then for a different space in London and then as a film like I kept coming back to it but I quite liked that like time in it you know like isn't I mean time for me I'm not great with time <laughs> and so I don't really see time as like the all and end all like super set like I'm really interested in almost like a physicalization of it which yeah. like the tape in many ways represented you know that period of like what is it like 15 40 years yeah so that's interesting yeah and also like that Derek Jarman quote at the beginning when it's like you walk into the garden and like time kind of doesn't matter like you know there's no there's no um, end or beginning no lunch break no last yeah, at home. Yeah. And yeah so I kind of felt free with time in this work I guess.
2: Sarah so if, if you wasn't an artist what do you think you'd like to be?
3: Well I mean I think because my work allows me to be a writer and a singer, one of those things. But I mean, my, I mean, I do, I curate um, and I, as I say, I sort of fundraise and consult for arts charities as well. So I do like, I keep very busy and I've got a really like, I'm quite like stimulated by lots of different things, doing lots of different things. So yeah, like I just love. At the end of the day, I think what inspires me is both I love music and um, art, obviously, and um, and ideas basically are at the core of everything. So I think something that was around ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Thought thought about them.
2: (laughs) And have you got anything else coming up at the moment?
3: Not really, because I mean, I literally only finished the trailer for this film like a week ago, I think. So it's, you know, I mean, we finished before the screening on the 10th of June, we literally finished the work that morning, I think. Excellent. Um, Yeah, (laughs) so it's been quite intense, but what I would love to do is obviously like, I'm gonna like enter this film into like festivals and stuff and you know, we get it out there. Um, What else? And I, uh, you know, speaking to some people about like one thing that's in the back of my mind, but it like might not happen and I can't really talk about it but um <laughs> therefore but um there's always something right there's always something but nothing like there's no like planned shows apart from yeah this this print i guess like so this new print for so home um it looks like it's happening so yeah a lot of people and Is it available
2: just through Soho House?
3: Yes yeah, available available via so homes website and yeah but it's not even made yet but it will be made quite soon because i know what i'm doing with it Excellent. Um, and
2: where can people see your film and until when?
3: So it's um, on soulhouse.com. And then if you go onto house or if you type in like house notes um, and then go into art and design, and it's like Sarah Hardy, um, uh, Soul House Art Prize winner, uh, and you can see a trailer there. And then you can click on a link that takes you to the full film, which is 30 minutes long and it's up until the 1st of July which is not too much longer. Um, So uh, do see it soon, because it has to come down then, Um, anyone who's listening and wants to. um, And yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, I'll be able to show it um, in galleries and and places going forward. And if you check out my Instagram, I E, then you can see a trailer and I've got the link as well um, that might be easier to like- Brilliant. To just see it, yeah.
2: (laughs) And could I ask, the music that you had going out during the credits. Yeah. Is that finished in there as well? That the, was
3: on the, the, the tape. Yeah, like that was on my mom's tape. Like everything, we were really like quite authentic and, you know, pure with with the tape. So like, we like, you know, we looped some sounds, um, me and James Oldham, like, who's just an amazing collaborator. Um, and like, he was a music supervisor. Um, and you can use logic, so he helped me um, do things basically. But like, yeah, there was, um, so mum was singing on it, along to lots of things. And then at the end, there's just this great Barbara Dixon chat. Brilliant. January, February. And then it's like the actual radio presenter's real voice. And he talks about Utopia. And I was like, God, the tape was made for this film. Yeah,
2: yeah. Which didn't fit and also fitted beautifully.
3: Yeah, quite a nice juxtaposition. Yeah, of course. Too. And it's like really like catchy, but also kind of m- melancholic as and well. And singing about the months as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so I was just like, God, oh, this is this is great. It's got to be in it. Yeah, and it's quite nice over the credits too. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that um, that seems to have worked for you. That's yeah, brilliant. <laughs> wow.
2: All right, well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
3: Awesome. Bye bye.
2: There you go, Sarah Hardy, how cool was that? Now as I mentioned at the start, and as did Sarah throughout this conversation, her film, Spring Sometimes Rises in Me Too, is only accessible to the end of the month. There will be a link in the show notes attached to this podcast. There will also be a link on the Ministry of Arts social media pages, as well as the website of Soho House. It really is an absolute thing of beauty. She didn't become the Soho House Art Prize winner for nothing, you know. So that's about it. Thank you to KTW London for connecting me with Sarah. And the next episode wasn't done over Zoom. It was recorded on location with Zach Ove at one of the country's finest art fabricators, MDM Props. As I say, that's next week. So I'll see you then. Well, hope you enjoyed that episode of the Ministry of Arts podcast. If you're unable to support us on Patreon, leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to this podcast really does help us get noticed and anyone else looking for an art podcast, or even giving us a positive shout-out on your social media. Anything is appreciated, but either way, thanks for listening, and until next week, sad